What I'm going to talk about today, Changing Frames of Obesity, is a, um, a version of a presentation, a keynote presentation I gave at a, a Gates meeting uh, last year in Canada. Um, <clears throat> it's an important issue because it stems from the original Jeff Rayner, Tim Lang uh, conversation about cacophonies in obesity policy. That there are so many framings, so many ways of thinking about obesity that it oftentimes lets policymakers off the hook because there's not a single message that you can, you can give in relation to, to, to obesity. So trying to think about how obesity is framed, how it's changed, and how it could change is going to be the, 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 the framework of the talk today. <coughs> so it's, <coughs> by way of introduction, it's many kinds of issue. It's shaped by different disciplines, institutions, agencies, and individuals. So, just as a list, just running off the top of my head, you know, it's medical, it's physiological, it deals with inequality, it, it, it involves stigma, opportunity, employment, risk, it involves families, lifestyles, consumption, motherhood, you go on and on and on. There are many different ways in which it's framed as an issue. And these are issues in which um, change across time, and each is understood differently using different models of representation. We have a, an issue of how do we start to, um, <clears throat> as George Davis Smith might put it, discipline the issue. So, for me, George Box is a, an accidental statistician, a bit of a hero of mine, who famously said all models are wrong, but some are useful. We could add also that some models are wrong and some also misrepresent a set of circumstances. The most commonly used model in obesity, that of energy balance, is the one that misrepresents metabolism and stigmatizes behavior. So immediately from the get-go, if you naturalize this particular model, how much food you take in and how much you expend, this is the taxi driver's model, not to diss taxi drivers, but this is the most common view of, uh, of obesity. It creates immediately a set, of, uh, a set of problems. So the plethora of models around obesity uh, have a history. I've talked about this history in this book that was published in 2017, Models of Obesity from Ecology to Complexity in Science and Policy and could run through them, uh, but probably don't need to really, in that some are considering um, obesity as an individual level issue, like the thrifty genotype idea. Some models are considering it at a gross population level, global level. Some are considering it as a cross-generational problem, like developmental programming. Some consider it as an environmental issue, as with the obesogenic environment framework, and so on. So they operate at different levels and use different proxies for this idea of excess body weight or excess body fatness. I'm not going to talk about how it becomes pathologized, merely to say, well, how do we start to discipline it? I love the absurdist playwrights, Luigi Pirandello, 
um, wrote six characters in search of an author. Um, it's an absurdist play. What is absurdism? It's an ability to find uh, meaning in an irrational world. And how do these six characters find meaning? Well, for me, this was uh, one inspiration for writing this book. I think of each of these models of obesity as a character in a play, and no playwright. Each character left to its own devices would wander around and say, well, how do I form a structure around this? I have my own <clears throat> implicit structure, but I don't see a meta-structure. So the problem is one of trying to find some kind of meta-structure, at least a cohesive narrative that can be used for intervention, can be used for policymaking, appropriate policymaking. And I cannot pretend that we have the answer. All we can do is keep on, keep on looking. How better to describe and try and unify the obesity landscape? I'm going to take us on a, narr- on a, on a, on a journey through complexity and systems. My obsession with systems goes back to my first degree in biochemistry, where everything is systems. You try to understand systems, and so I see systems everywhere. That's my problem. But I think they can be harnessed to thinking about obesity as, 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 as sets of systems, or an outcome of sets of systems. Uh, complexity arises in a number of different fields in relation to... Um, tipping towards new sets of circumstances, new sets of conditions that are difficult to understand when considering individual factors. It's often not one thing or another or another, it's the combination of factors. Sometimes I've described obesity as a plane crash. Population obesity is a plane crash. Inasmuch as it's not. The pilot was drinking too much alcohol the night before. The air traffic control system is not operating as well as, as well as it could be on that day. The weather is bad. The plane wasn't, wasn't repaired, repaired properly or something like that. It's the fact that many of these things come together at the same time. So models of obesity, my last book, um, focused on how these things might be structured. And its origins is the spaghetti diagram of the UK government foresight obesity system. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. This is the full generic map. I don't understand it. You can't understand it. But you can get an appreciation of the complexity of factors that here is the energy balance model right in the middle of this. And then you have a lot of different factors operating. Individual physiology, um, psychology, individual food intake, physical activity, the food system, urban planning, and what creates the physical activity environment in all of this. This was undertaken under the Blair administration, um, started in 2005, and finished shortly after Tony Blair left office and Gordon Brown took over. The idea about the Foresight think tank in the UK government is to transcend party politics and to move beyond short-term planning. So, as part of this, and a number of other people who are involved in this, a number of people who are from Oxford were involved in this Foresight Think Tank, and actually UBVO came out of the Foresight Think Tank, and they said, in, in, when, we, when we talked to each other and said, we have to stop meeting in London, we should actually start meeting in Oxford, because we kept just meeting at these, uh, at these, uh, these, these governmental, uh, governmental meetings. <laughs> 
Society is placed up there in that little corner up there. It's mostly focused on media and the influence of, of media on obesity. So the attempt of the foresight system is to think 50 years ahead and can we produce policy that is reasonably ideology-proof? That is, if the government changes tomorrow, can you pick up a policy that will work for that government according to that ideology and still be effective? Uh, what's happened politically since then will allow us to actually examine that, or I have systematically e examined how it's done that in relation to, to, to obesity. This is a complexity map, the spaghetti diagram. And it's a particular form of complexity, according to John Law, sociologist. But it's a form of romantic complexity, which I characterise by this wonderful painting, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, by Caspar David Friedrich, um, where, you know, the lone artist, the lone scholar, is looking across the landscape, can see things that somebody down in the valley cannot see. Looking across the landscape. And to look at foresight in this particular way, the domains of foresight are very much romantic complexity. You have societal influences, food production, food consumption, biology, individual activity, activity environment, all embedded in this, in this landscape so you can go above it, which is what policymakers want. They want to be able to see the landscape. Policymakers are informed not to get too close to the detail. So seeing the landscape is a useful thing. In as much as a policy formulation might focus on some aspect of this environment that may influence other aspects of the environment, other aspects of the landscape, <clears throat> looking for the biggest effect for minimum input. Then, of course, we have the sub-networks within this that are Baroque complexity. Within this, we have particular research domains like growth and profitability, economic uh, and business aspects, appetite, which is a, a research discipline in its own right, genetics, psychology and ambivalence, functional physiological fitness, sedentary employment. All of these are particular domains of interest that are uh, called Baroque complexity. According to John Law again, what is Baroque complexity? Instead of looking up, it looks down and discovers limitless internal complexity. Dig deeper, you will always find more complexity. The people who are studying the neurophysiology of appetite, for example, are finding ever more complexity in understanding uh, not just what's happening in the brain in relation to the mouth, also in relation to the gut. Every new piece of knowledge that we have in relation to uh, understanding appetite is increasing the complexity of that particular domain. Thus, studying appetite on its own cannot resolve issues of obesity because they are considering one aspect of complexity, one type of Baroque complexity, that then has to be framed in relation to the other domains that are also complex. So you can see the problem. When policymakers want to strip things back to some, some level of simplicity that one can be acted upon, um, it's no good saying we need more data, always finding it's more complex than it was before. It's just saying, well, it's not tractable as a policy issue, which does happen. 
So there's no limits to this complexity, nor possibility of modelling or knowing that complexity in full. The more you find, the more complex it gets, the less likely you are to tame that complexity. There's no assumption of coherence across the different Baroque complexities. So there's different spheres are operating in different domains using different disciplinary tools and theory, and they do not necessarily have to speak to each other. Again, in relation to, to policy, that creates a certain kind of a problem. So, complexity and emergence. How do we think of obesity or frame obesity as an issue of complexity? Well, first of all, there are a couple of very good books on the history of obesity, body fatness. Gilman, Vigarello, that talk about body fatness in individuals across history, and these are well, you know, well documented, well known. But this is different to the emergence of obesity as a population phenomenon, that is, as a mass phenomenon as opposed to a phenomenon that influences individuals. Different thing. That in respect to this historical obesity of individuals, you can very easily invoke genetic factors, like monogenic issues associated with, with obesity. For example, in relation to as a population phenomenon, other things are going on. You cannot just say this is down to some specific genetic variation, uh, variant, for example, just to highlight the problem. So, complexity to emergence. Boyd Swinburne, um, a colleague and friend of mine, coined the term obesogenic environments in 1999. And he has written about the pull phase of obesity and the push phase, where energy expenditure drives energy intake, and energy intake drives energy expenditure. But in some society, in many societies, there's a tipping point towards people become more sedentary and they start to consume more. How helpful is this? It's using intake as a proxy for body fat and using the energy balance model as well. So it's a de degree of separation between um, the gain in weight and the assumption that is straightforwardly food coming in that's influencing things. It becomes problematic when you can consider two countries, for example, the United States and the UK. In the United States, we can look at food availability per capita and say, well, since the 1960s, more or less, per capita food intake has generally increased and obesity rates have increased. Okay, this fits this energy balance model. When you look at the UK, you can see that energy intakes haven't increased very much, and you can't explain the rise in rates of obesity in the UK on the basis of the, this tipping point energy balance model. A number of different countries where some countries it fits, in other countries it doesn't fit. Well, it tells you that this is not a universal model for a start. If you choose to believe it, you can't say it works everywhere in, in, in a similar kind of way. And there are other things going on. And these other things that are going on, it's not so simple. Portrayed as being simple and intuitively attractive, but it's not so simple. I spent some time with economists and epidemiologists in the UK, in Denmark, in Sweden, to look at kind of naturalistic finding. These are uh, global obesity rates, 
um, male and female. This is across the planet. Um, High-income countries here. It's an acceleration from the 1990s. There's enough obesity data in the world to be able to construct patterns of acceleration, patterns of deceleration, especially in the United States. The US had one um, acceleration event in the 1960s and another acceleration event in the 1990s. So we start off with a simple pre premise, which we can test. After Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan came to government, obesity rates accelerated, certainly in those two countries. Turning this into a testable hypothesis needs a little bit of political science. And the political science was in relation to neoliberalism and the development of a neoliberalism stress model. Okay. When people are on zero-hours contracts, when people have to work all the hours they have, stress becomes an issue in society. And so there are other mechanisms that are operating in relation to the production of obesity. Metabolic as well as behavioural in relation to food intake, metabolic in relation to elevated cortisol levels. So the physiology of neoliberalism is actually the thing that is under, is, is under scrutiny in, in, this, uh, in this scenario. How much um, does neoliberalism impact on things? Well, GDP increases, that's a good thing, uh, but body mass increases quite significantly in relation to global increases in, uh, in uh, gross domestic product. After that, patterns of economic globalization have a weaker but still a strong effect on increased, uh, increased body mass. The one thing that this analysis that looks at global increases in body mass index in relation to globalization and GDP is the genuine progress indicator, which is a measure of how happy people are in society. If this general progress indicator is increasing, it means that general welfare and well-being in a country is increasing. The only countries where the genuine progress indicator has gone side by side with increased gross, gross domestic product is Norway, for example, where they've been able to turn <coughs> increased prosperity into increased social welfare, for example. So this is where the Nordic countries become particularly interesting, and this is where my passion about the Nordic countries emerges in its many forms, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, that how countries run matters. But in fact, we found with the neoliberal stress model that being a particularly open, economically open society has a cost in terms of increasing body fatness, excess body fatness, shall we put it, and a quite considerable one. It led one journalist to say, called speaking English a risk factor for obesity, because it was mostly the Anglophone countries. Uh, United States, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland were the countries that stood out as the places that had considerable, uh, comparatively higher rates, epidemiological rates of, of, uh, of obesity. So how can, we, how can we rethink this? What else is happening when markets are open? Led me to Giddens and Structures of Late Modernity. 
in the context of increasing body weight, what are things that are going on with globalization? We call late modernity, modernity as we know it, plus computing, plus globalization. Okay, computing is important. Computing is important because we see from the 1980s expert system functionality. What are expert systems? Expert systems are the decision-making processes that are replaced by computers. They can make decisions in real-life situations that are set up by so-called experts, inverted commas, he's got a beard, I've got a beard, my hair's not quite long enough yet, but not quite long enough to be an expert, but I'm working on it. Um, you develop a knowledge base, you have an inference engine, user interface, and then you can let things run. Expert systems are everywhere. Every one of you has a phone. Most of you will have a smartphone. That smartphone is running off an expert system. Everything that is networked com in, 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 through computerization is running off an expert system. The ones that are associated with the issues that I'm talking about today include agriculture, retail, transportation, epidemiology, urban planning, distribution planning, public transport, medical management, traffic management, medical diagnosis, and food safety. These are all separate, discrete expert systems that rely on computing to be able to do its work, to be able to do their work in a fairly seamless way, in a way that you don't even notice. For example, if you want to use the roads and you're using a motor car, you have a sat-nav, you have the roads, you have the speed cameras, you have the signals that tell you what the speed limit, you have safety belts, you have safety features built into your motor car. You are not just in a motor car expressing your free will behind the wheel. You are part of an expert system where at the macro level, the people that regulate the transport system are watching where the traffic builds up at different times and tries to make sure the smooth running of traffic through a country much as water running through a set of pipes. So at the macro level, that's how these things are examined. This is one expert system of food. And again, one struggles to understand what's happening in this expert system. Lots of things are swirling around. Big sets of relationality from the micro to the macro. In terms of food security, nobody controls the expert system. It's an ecology. All expert systems are ecologies and therefore rely on developing some level of stability in relation to everything else that's happening. So in relation to the food system, the, with respect to the sugar tax in the UK, for example, the corporations, food corporations, were unhappy with imposing a sugar tax. They could cope with it, and they can cope with it, but it would create instability in the system. Governments are unhappy to regulate food because it creates instabilities in this global food system. So under the Brown administration, I was involved in uh, another think tank about, about the UK food system the root and branch investigation of the UK food system, you can find the policy document. There's even a diagram of mine in that document where <clears throat> it was deemed that the UK could become self-sufficient in food, it would require a number of changes, but these things can be done. There's the technologies to um, not, just, not just fall back on the traditional staples of this country, but actually to innovate and produce new things. 
and to embrace new technologies and producing new foods and being open to the challenge of using all the new kinds of foods that seem to be possible to us now. Well, in the end, they said we're just going to fall back on the global food system. They rejected it because the lobbying around the food corporations was so large that they said, well, we just want to keep things stable. If the government takes responsibility for the food system, then they take responsibility for the perturbations in the food system as well. So you can see underlying these things is a desire for stability. Even if it's not right or not perfect, it's a desire, uh, it's a, a desire for stability. So the argument that I have made is that obesity, excess body fatness at the population level is an inadvertent outcome of practices of late modernity and of complex systems. And that is, most of these expert systems do not account for body size. They don't use data in their models to say what are the impacts of this on body size. One of the earliest, you know, for example, modeling of sugar tax was looking at the impacts of of, of, uh, of sugar consumption or reducing sugar consumption on body size. Modeling it imperfectly, of course, but saying, well, look, actually, if you tweak the system, it will have real biological outcomes. So one of the things that can change this is turning the kinds of statistics that are collected on body size, weight and height, school children in this country, a million children every year are measured, into so-called national statistics. What national statistics are, the statistics that the government, this country, um, has to collect on a regular basis and may take account of when modelling different economic processes, effects of taxation. They can look at the likely impacts of a particular tax on body size. So that's one thing that came out of the National Child Measurement Programme some, some five years or so ago. So, the collection of the data is a form of surveillance that can be incorporated into, into modelling the practices of late modernity, that is changing the food system, that is changing some aspect of transportation. There will be, you know, for example, in this country, moving from motor cars to, to, to automated vehicles is going to have an implication on, on, on human, human bodies and on health. That could be modelled they wish to. So, if obesity is the product of complex systems, can we try to understand obesity as a complex system? So what followed from this tipping point time around 2007 was the emergence of all kinds of systemic models of, uh, of body size and obesity. Social networks, systems models, political economic models, molecular networks, multi-level models, complex adaptive systems, agent-based models of, um, <coughs> of, uh, of obesity. So new models, new complexity models, and taking this idea in, in policy was an attempt to bring science into policy and society in a more streamlined and effective way. So, Obesity, I've argued, was made complex by the UK government in an attempt to bring together different governmental departments. And I'll talk about this in a, in a little bit more, a little bit more detail now. So, so the Foresight Obesity Systems Map. Nobody can understand it. 
that if you have any um, sense of science and technology studies, the way that it was developed was to develop it as an obesity policy boundary object. That is, nobody really understands it, but if it's there on the table, you can argue your part of it. So if you're in a food corporation, you can argue your part of food, food, food production. If you are um, an urban planner, you can argue your part of it. It brings people to the table. Even though stakeholders may have very disparate interests, they can come together over this particular issue by arguing, well, you know, let's see how this map works if we do this or that. So it starts to create a sense of what kinds of policies could be, could be developed. So response ideas for obesity interventions that came from this model were quite varied. From the perception of safety at the top, if your neighbourhood is da dangerous, are you going to walk in your neighbourhood? Is your neighbourhood walkable? Do you want to walk in your neighbourhood? What would make it walkable? Well, let's put some sculpture in, let's put some gardens in, let's make it pleasant, but also let's make it safe so people want to walk. Can we improve food literacy? That is, if children are not taught to cook and they don't know what a carrot is and don't know where milk comes from, um, can this improve obesity rates? Can we have interventions at the early life stage? That is, can we encourage breastfeeding, for example? Countries that encourage breastfeeding, let's say Scandinavian countries, give long maternity leave. By giving long maternity leave, they are indirectly uh, promoting breastfeeding because they create the structural circumstances for breastfeeding. You don't actually say breastfeed, you say have this time off work and look after your baby. So child-centred uh, child policies that are believed to have impacts across society but also in relation to this particular issue. And then right at the bottom, penalise parents. And this has happened where children have been taken into care because their extreme body size has been, uh, large body size has been seen as a, as a marker of, uh, of, uh, of child abuse, for example. You can find all that on the web. So the implications are huge. The policy objects that came out of foresight, which include societal impacts, food, transportation, political change, all of them, most of them, food, transport, political change, all come out as expert systems. The energy balance model is not complex, it's not expert, it's at the individual level. And you can turn that into, and use that as a, a, a model of uh, policy intervention by blaming everything on the individual, which is the easiest default position that many governments have taken. But, in my view, it's just plain wrong. Because there are so many things that operate against the individual in order to be able to resist this flood of high-energy dense foods that um, taste good and are in front of us everywhere we go pretty well. You look at how much sugar there is available on the, you know, in the environment in the UK, it's huge. Sugar everywhere. Uh, Genetics may be complex, but it's not expert, and it's at the individual level. Appetite, complex, increasingly so. 
not an expert system. So this can help to think about what kind of policy you might want to impose to, uh, to, uh, uh, to address this particular issue. There's no right or wrong. The UK government made obesity complex. I was in the very fortunate position of being part of this think tank and then being allowed to use my notebooks to publish a paper from it. Try and do that in the United States. Try and do that in Australia. Can't do it. I was very privileged. I asked, I did all the appropriate things, and they were very happy for me to publish a critical paper about this process because I think the policymakers in the UK are astute to the fact that you know, knowledge is always good and even self-knowledge is even better, um, my experience of it anyway. So the idea of framing obesity as a system was implicit to foresight. Um, it's a causal loop, soft systems model. It's used for, most often, for understanding problems with psychological, social, cultural elements. And embedded in this was the implicit view that obesity is a social issue that is politically tractable. What is interesting was that there was an a priori exclusion of a medical solution to this issue. It was not giving the green light to finding a cure for obesity. It was very much framed as a social issue with a, with a, with a political outcome. <clears throat> Foresight obesities was also an instrument of governmental modernization. Vernon Bogdanov, who's a political scientist here in Oxford, wrote about joined up government. The Blair administration of the early 2000s was very keen on dealing with the complex problems that one government department couldn't resolve. There were, for example, climate change was the first one. There was the Stern report, and then there was a, you know, what can we do about climate change? No one government department can take responsibility for it. It has to be cross-talk across departments. So there's a lot of siloing in most governments. Different departments stay separate. There's often the cultures of different departments may differ. Different departments have different status within, within government. And so some people talk, some people don't talk to each other. So the idea of this foresight obesity systems map was then used to map where the government departments sat. And looking at this, that the you know, Department of Health was down here, the Department of Transport was over here, um, the uh, Food Standards Agency, as well as them, was over here. All of them sitting in different domains. So we're saying, well, actually, when we model obesity as this spaghetti diagram, where does the responsibility sit for this? And the responsibility sits in different places. So at that time, there was an idea to join up government through a cross-government committee for obesity, that there would be different departments would speak to each other in relation to a policy that was happening in the Department of Health would join up with a, with a policy that was happening in the Department of Education. That was the, that was the idea. I love those times because they seemed so, so nice in comparison. They were still savage, but they were nice in comparison to, to uh, how things are now. Let's look back on that time and let's look forward to, to where we are now. Well, first of all, the whole systems approach, this is 
late 2018. I don't know where the government is on this now. I perfectly don't know. But this is this is the what the UK government signed up to from the uh, WHO childhood obesity policy, which itself was an exclusionary process. A number of different aspects of obesity, childhood obesity regulation were, were, were left out. Uh, the UK government, many other governments, have given up on adults. The place for intervention is children, it's not adults anymore. But by the time you become an adult, it's probably, you know, no longer something for, 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 for policy makers, which I think is which I think is which is a shame. The targets with a focus on health inequality reduction still remains. Um, advertising, marketing and price promotion, all of this is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is a subject of policy, but it will change. It will change particularly in relation to um, the, uh, in relation to Brexit. Controls of advertising on high fat sugar or salt things before 9pm, that's still there. Alignment of regulation being broadcast in social media, that's happening. Calorie labelling, that's an issue. Calorie labelling has very little effect, research has shown, on what, on what people actually buy. Because most people don't read the labels. It doesn't matter what, uh, what's put on, on the packets of food. Most people do not have the time or often the ability to understand what a label is doing. So traffic light systems are good. You know, green, amber, red are helpful. But most people are not looking at these things. And uh, there's something called consumer attention deficit disorder coined by a couple of colleagues in, in Norway you say well when you're going around a supermarket you're making all kinds of mental shortcuts in what you're buying so putting putting extra information on a label isn't going to uh, isn't going to improve things terribly much except for the people who care and the people who care are probably doing quite well already the things that are left out though breastfeeding um, local government involvement in, in improving uh, food and nutrition in schools, nothing happening there. Access to effective services for children and families, nothing happening there. In Sweden, services for children and families are way up high on the agenda because they child-centred policies are seen as being the crucial ones. The ones that the UK government isn't looking at are the ones that are seen as being important in, in, the, in the Scandinavian countries. Okay, so how can we move forward with thinking about complexity and obesity? Can we mobilize ignorance when thinking about obesity? Problems can be solved by not solving them. The more unsolvable a problem is, the higher is its reproductive value politically. This sabotages the hope that we can force ecological problems into being organizational tasks and therefore ensure they will be dealt with in an expert manner. That is, the complexity idea is made central because you can't fix it. You can't put a straight line through the complexity and say, we'll just change this one thing and it will improve everything. It will change everything. Not like that at all. So that's one thing. <clears throat> Proceeding from an ecology of ignorance would lead to an organizational theory that's better able to recognize that complex problems 
can't be broken down into quantifiable objectives or turned into strategic interventions with quantified regimes of efficacy. That is, you can't turn this into a linear problem where you measure one thing, an input, you measure an output, and there you have, you solve the problem. Even with the sugar tax, you will not resolve this particular issue. It will, and that's a very much a, 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 a task of quantified, quantifiable objectives with a strategic intervention, which can be measured, but it will only resolve one aspect to, to this particular issue. Many things you won't, you won't know about. Okay, I'm going to turn to uh, the last part and something that I made a lot of in the Models of Obesity book, that is rationalities. It's always struck me that we live in an age of economic rationality, that ever since David Carman, we know that you know, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the individual that expresses rational choice doesn't really exist. They're a convenient construct. So in this slide, we've got you know, how rationality, rational choice might operate in, in the stock exchange. Um, I've got a stock here that would really excel, 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 excel. Chinese whispers, sell, 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 sell. Madness, can't take any more. Goodbye, goodbye, bye, 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 bye. So this kind of semantic shift can lead to a stock market logic that has real life implications. When we think about how the stock exchange operates in relation to minerals and most resources, mostly they're reasonably abstracted from our everyday lives. But food is not. Food, what happens on the market to food has real life implications for, for human biology. So, in a kind of slapdash way, I fled to Immanuel Kant um, for comfort, and uh, looked into how he framed rationality. Fundamentally, theoretical rationality and practical rationality. In terms of obesity, what is theoretical rationality? What types of evidence are rational to believe? What should you believe? Biological, medical, economic, historical, anthropological, sociological? Yes, all of those count. Practical rationality, what kinds of interventions are rational to do? What types of behavior are rational in relation to food, the body, and physical activity? Then we start to get into dangerous ground. And that's when Max Weber comes into, becomes important. Just add Weber. The modern world is much more than Kant. It's also much more than Max Weber. But from the perspective of rationalities, it gets us a lot of the way there in trying to rethink how we are uh, functioning in the world. So practical rationality, acceptance of given realities, finding the most expedient means of dealing with difficulties. Most of us are doing this every day. So practical rationality, theoretical rationality, uh, using abstract concepts rather than through action. Cognitive processes that are abstract denote theoretical rationality. Again, I think everybody in this room is doing that. You're doing some form of science, applying abstractions to the everyday world. Substantive rationality is ordered action in relation to past, present, or future value postulates. So value postulates vary in comprehensiveness, internal consistency, and content. 
feudalism, communism, hedonism, egalitarianism, Calvinism, Buddhism, the Renaissance view of life, aesthetic notions of the beautiful are all examples of substantive, substantive rationalities. And yet, you know, even when you're doing science, you're applying substantive rationalities to theoretical rationalities because you often think about what is beautiful, what is parsimonious in what you're doing. You see the beautiful and it's implicitly right, but you, you're not then applying theoretical rationality. And formal rationality lies in bureaucracy. So post-industrialization, uh, post, uh, the economic, legal, and scientific spheres are all regulated by bureaucracies. Abstract rules dominate, and decisions are arrived at with re without regard to persons. I love that one, because when you get really infuriated by some official, you know that official is just doing their job in relation to the logic of their, of their, of their formal rationality. So how does this help to understand obesity, science, policy, and society? Well, <coughs> taking a, a two-way grid, whereby we have these different rationalities on one axis, and then the institutions and people um, that, these, that are influenced by those rationalities, government, corporations, science, non-governmental organizations, and then people. Economic rationality operates in all of these. Everything can be reduced to the dollar, or the euro, or the pound, and any other currency that might work for you. So economic rationality is often the currency that is used in thinking through many problems in everyday life. Um, whereas for people, we can see that things like, I've added psychological and evolution rationalities to this list, so apologies I didn't give you that slide, but that, that there are aspects of personal behavior, social behavior that does not fit into how governments think um, or how corporations think. So corporations have their particular logic, science has its own logic, non-governmental organizations have their logic, and individual people have their logic. Of course, this is a cartoon characterization. Not everybody is like that, not every corporation is like that, not every government is exactly like that, but it points to a problem, which is that if we reduce everything to the dollar, then there are things we're not going to be able to fix. So how can we use this? So I'm going to show just a few more slides in uh, trying to, 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 to use rational, rationality approaches to understanding obesity and environment. <clears throat> this was myself in a big crowd of Danes. And um, uh, we did something called a data sprint, which is, uh, these are people that cause uh, Torben Jensen, is an STS scholar, uh, in a department of techno-anthropology um, in Copenhagen. <clears throat> and um, they pulled together all the articles that could be found on obesity and environment. In the end, it came down to articles in the English language, 414 articles that used artificial intelligence to look for discursive patterns within that literature. That makes life different, if not necessarily easier, because getting, getting a machine to read all the literature you need to read sounds great. You press the button, off you go. But not quite like that, because it has to do semantic analyses, and these have to be 
put in somewhere. So you have to have discussions about what is important to to to, to look at in in uh, in these relationships. So it's food and environment, the built environment and obesity, family and obesity, bodies and obesity, the institutional. What we found was this discursive field of obesogenic environments turns out to be actually five different fields. So even in the science, it can be segregated into, into uh, a number of different fields. But each of them has their own rationality. Now what's interesting is that if we take this apart, everybody's saying, well, let's make obesity an issue of the environment rather than the individual. Let's just make that leap. If you do that, then you can say, <clears throat> what are the environments that we should be interested in? We've done this analysis using artificial intelligence, read everything that's out there, it seems to be what the experts seem to kind of agree on. That these are different fields, in these different fields, the scholars are just talking to each other within those different sections of it. Institutional environments, built environments, food environments, bodily environment, internal environment, the family environment. The rationalities, what are they concerned with? The obesity object, institutional food services with respect to the institutions, uh, population obesity in relation to the built environment and food, the energy balance model in this case, so to say, uh, and the physical activity and food intake, um, fat deposition where it's deposited in relation to the bodily environments, the family in relation to children and adolescents and, and obesity, and then the organizational frameworks. We could probably dissect this complexity pattern into something that is tractable by saying, if we're interested in institutional environments, then maybe it should be governmental policy that should focus on that. If we're interested in food environments, then maybe we should be tackling the corporations one way or another. Bodily environment, the science. These are the people who will be looking for some kind of medical intervention for, for obesity. So the possible interventions are various. What can it do? Just finishing off here. Rationality approaches to obesity could clarify interdisciplinary discourses. That is the idea of obesogenic environments. Um, it can engage government, science and corporations in other ways of thinking, thinking about, uh, thinking about obesity. So to summarize the talk, I hope you've stayed with me some of the way. Uh, there are many types of model. They're all wrong. Some are useful. Some are misguided, which is probably worse than being wrong. Um, <clears throat> obesity can be construed as an inadvertent outcome of late modernity and of expert systems that have not incorporated the human body in their calculations as to how a particular system should operate. There are different forms of obesity complexity. So people who talk about obesity complexity, they say it's complex. Well, that's the same as give me a waste paper bin. It's the same as saying I can sign obesity this bin. Okay, this bin is complexity. Okay, it's like saying I'm going to do nothing about it because you're going to put everything in that bin and you're trying to understand the bin. The first thing you can do is start to say, well, what kinds of complexity you're dealing with? Most people who are working on obesity complexity don't even get that far. Uh, because they're in policy. Can governments use complexity in systems? Yes. Boundary objects, very, very useful. Finding the right one, bringing people to the table. 
Um, Rationality's approach identifies mismatches in obesity science, policy, and society, and they may productively mobilize ignorance towards interdisciplinary approaches. That's my vision, and this is Dennis sinking. Thank you.